is love. The handout that you're getting, we're not really going to go over. Once again, it's a sort of a resource, and we will go over the one side of it. But if it's helpful, once again, I want to give you tools to use, tools that if you use them, it can really change the way you see life. So when we look at what is love, I watch, I watch uh, whenever you have a hurting person, they certainly do not understand what, what love is. And even people who are not hurting have a hard time understanding what love is. Our world is totally confused about what love is. The enemy wants us to be confused about what love is. So when, when somebody says to you, I love you, what do they mean? You know, it's important for you to know. Young ladies, when a young man says, I love you, what do you think they mean? It's, it's good that you, you probably ought to figure out what, what they mean. Does it mean I really think a lot of you, or does it mean I love your body? You know, you need to know what they mean when they say, I love you. Because I love you, it, it, it can mean different things. And we want to look at what I love you means. But what do you mean when you say I love you? Now, we use this expression pretty loosely. And our world uses it very loosely. So I, what we want to look at this afternoon is it's a love that we need to choose. Because the default, the default is going to be a love that we don't want. And there always will be a default love. So my, my thought process here is, is that, there, that all of life is going to fit into one of two loves. In the Greek, there's like five different Greek words that mean love. And yet, in the American language, we basically boil it down to one word, and that is love. So we want to look at what does love mean, and, and what, what does it mean when we hear it and say it? So the love I choose is two loves. It's either agape or eros. Now, we already talked about the word iniquity. And so you will not find the word eros anywhere in the New Testament. It's not there. So when I say all of life will fit into either agape or eros, why would we do that? Well, the concept of eros is there big time. And that eros is found in the word iniquity. So we're going to be looking at at that word, but we're going to say all of life boils down to these two words, and here's why. Uh, agape is, is something that we believe is a, a God-ordained and God-ordered and, and centered love. Eros has, is self-referential, and that's why you see the two arrows. Agape has a, a, an arrow that's moving out from itself, and it's always others-centered. Eros has a hook in it. It always has a, an arrow pointing back at itself. Eros is always self-referential. It's a love of self. So now we have the Greek word phileo. Phileo is a friendship love, and there we have an arrow going both ways. Why would it go both ways? Well, it just depends. So phileo is a friendship love. So why are you my friend? Oh, you're my friend because you have a cabin in the mountains. And if I if I nurture that friendship, maybe you'll let me use the cabin. Okay, maybe you have a position of, of influence, and if I nurture that friendship because of association, I can be connected to that position of influence. Maybe you have wealth, okay? It, it always has a self-referential. So uh, phileo love will go either way. 
it's a decision that you have to choose. What, why, am, why are you my friend? Why am I your friend? So there's, there's two scriptures here. In 1 Peter 1.22, it talks about the unfeigned love of the brothers. That word is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. That's why there's no crime there, no murder in Philadelphia. It's a place where everybody goes because there's peace, safety. No, I live not far from Philadelphia. I know better. But you see, it was named that because it was the city of brotherly love. And it, that word in Greek, in, in our, in a, and if you look at an interlinear New Testament, you're going to see that the unfeigned love is the word Philadelphia. But also in 1 Timothy 3, 2, it says in the last days, there will be lovers of self. You see, now it's, it's philatos, and that word means a self-focused love. So all of life will fit into one of these two loves. Well, what about sex? Okay, uh, what happened to sex? It disappeared. Okay, sex is supposed to be up there above phileo. Okay, it disappeared on us. Uh, let's talk about it anyway. So sex will go either way, one way or the other. So sex outside of marriage, because it is outside of God's ordained plan for it, is always eros. But sex within marriage, what is that? It depends. It depends what the motive is, you see. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's very important for us to understand that there are two loves. The agape is theocentric, it's God-centered. Eros is egocentric, it's man-centered. And that is in your handout. You have a, you know, on your back page of that handout, you're going to see the same thing. You don't have to look at that. You can just look up here. Okay? Uh, agape seeks God for his own sake. Eros seeks to satisfy its own hunger. Did you know that you can seek God for an Eros nature, a reason? Uh, how about if you want fire insurance? Okay, people seek God because they want fire insurance. And I'm telling you, that's an okay reason to start the process of seeking God because you don't want to go to hell, okay? So we have this fear of being, of being you know, eternally lost, and so it moves us to, to, to seek God, and that's an okay, but it can't stay there because then we're seeking God for a self-centered, I just, I just want, I want fire insurance, so we seek God for that. Or we seek him because we want his blessings. Once again, it's, it's self-centered referential. Agape, this is an important one, agape is neither kindled by nor quenched by the qualities of its attention. And that's a tough one because it goes against our human nature. Uh, because we, we have these attractions to something that's beautiful and attractive. And I am that way and you are that way. And so, but agape isn't. In fact, it even says that Jesus is not, he was not attractive. He was not somebody that he was to be, to be desired because of his appearance. But eros is the opposite. It's an appetite. It's a desire aroused by the attractive qualities of the thing or person loved. And so when we look at something, and it's what gets us into trouble because we have desires, but when desires are self-centered and self-motivated, now we are going to pursue them and we will sacrifice others to achieve what we want. So it's an appetite aroused by the beauty or something that attracts us to it. Agape always acts in the best interest of the object love, whereas Eros is very value conscious. And it's, once again, it's what's in it for me. And that is the, uh, that is the motive of so much of today's culture and society. What's in it for me? It's, it's the motive of advertising. 
Years ago, when I first started in business, we had a power equipment business. Advertising gave features and benefits. Anybody remember those days? Features and benefits. This, this, this tractor, if you buy this, it'll give you, these are the features and here's the benefits for having it. Do you ever see advertising today? It has nothing to do with features and benefits. It's all about pizzazz. It's all about the totally crazy, it doesn't even make sense, but it's all about pizzazz. It's all about getting your attention. It's all about getting you to want something that will give you something. And so advertising today is all about pleasing me. You haven't, you haven't lived until you've driven this car. You haven't, you haven't experienced life until you went on this vacation. You know, even using Charmin, you know, you haven't lived life until you use Charmin, okay? You know, it, it, I'm just telling you, it's just, it's just so, it, it's so self-centered and self, so self-referential and, and motivated. That's what's happening in our world. And then, uh, here's, a, here's another huge one. Agape examines self and accepts others. But look what Eros does. It overlooks self and examines others. Now, if you tell me if an Eros isn't in the church, I'm telling you it is. Because, you see, God teaches us that we should examine ourselves, but our culture sort of teaches us to examine others. And God says, no, examine yourself, accept others. We have a habit of accepting ourselves and overlooking our own flaws, but judging others. Aren't you glad we're not like that? I thought so. Agape seeks healing for one's own problems, whereas Eros, the problems are out there. Okay, do you ever meet people like that? The problems are all out there. And once again, you're, I'm so glad that we're not like that. And agape comes from God, and it reveals God, whereas eros is our fallen nature, and it reveals who we are inside. So Jesus is taking Peter on a journey to brokenness. And most of you, I think, already know this information, but to me, it's, it's important for us to see. And that is in John 21, when they had dined, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you agape me more than these? Now, this had to be a painful question because he says more than these. Some people say, well, was that meant, did that mean the fish, that they just caught this big pile of fish and Peter was a fisherman? Or did it mean the other disciples that were there? I sort of think it might have meant the other disciples because remember what Peter had said earlier? He says, Jesus, though all others betray you, I won't. And so he, he had already declared that he wouldn't, he wouldn't betray Jesus. So here's Jesus looking at Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, Lord, you know I love you. But you see, when you look at it in the Greek, there's two Greek words. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Do you sacrificially love me unconditionally for just, for just my sake? And Peter goes, well, Jesus, you know I'm your friend. Okay, then he asks again, Simon, do you agape me? And he answers again, Lord, you know I am your friend. You know I phileo you. He says to him the third time, Simon, do you phileo me? And this time Peter was grieved because he said to him, do you phileo me? You see, Jesus knew what he was doing. He was saying to Peter, and many people haven't, have come up with their own concepts of what's being said here, but isn't it interesting that Jesus is saying, Peter, are you sure you're my friend? 
Are you sure you're my friend? And he grieved Peter because, you see, Jesus used different words. We read it in our English Bibles, and it just says love, 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 love. But no, it was using agape, phileo, agape, phileo, phileo. And Peter got it. Peter heard it, and he grieved. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. You see, Jesus was taking Peter on a journey of brokenness because, you see, Peter was a so confident man. Who does, who does men say that I, that I am? Oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, man, flesh and blood didn't declare that unto you. Jesus revealed, I mean, the Father revealed that to, unto you. And he was building Peter up. A little later, then he says he's going to be killed, and Peter goes, never, no way. And Jesus says, get me behind me, Satan. You know, Peter was this brash man. You know, he carried the sword. He cut off the servant's ear. He was just that man. He was in there. He was supporting Jesus at every step of the way, but he felt so confident that he could do it on his own. And Jesus knew he had to walk him through a journey of brokenness. You know, I have watched in my own life. God had to walk me through a journey of brokenness. And the way he did that, you see, I married this beautiful girl. She was the girl of my dreams. And it's sort of why we do this preparing for marriage weekend, because no one helped me make a marriage work. Nobody taught us how to make a relationship work. And so after a while, our marriage failed. And I mean failed. And we had to rebuild it. And it was, it was, it was horrible. It was so painful. Some of you know that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so we decided we won't marry anybody unless we sit down and go through it. Now, that's why we, it, we want to prevent problems. We can prevent most of those problems. I'm convinced of that. But nobody had helped me. I didn't understand. So in my, in my wrong concept of love, I damaged our marriage big time. And God had to take me on a process of brokenness to the point where this girl that I loved and I just believed I married the girl of my dreams, she told me, I don't love you, and I don't think I can ever love you again. And I couldn't make that girl love me. I don't care what. I tried everything I could to make her love me, and I couldn't do it. It, it took brokenness. It took getting to the place where I didn't have answers anymore. And God was faithful to allow us to rebuild. I'm so grateful for that. I, I believe if we wouldn't have been part of a, a people of God who didn't believe in divorce, I think we might have. You know, I... I, I really think so. So here's what's fascinating. You see, it was successful. Jesus did walk him through a journey of brokenness. And you get to 1 Peter 4.8, and look what Peter says. Above all, agape each other deeply. Do you see what he's saying? He understood. You see, Jesus had to point out to him, there's a difference in loves. There's a whole lot of difference between friendship because what you can get out of your relationship with me, Peter. Yeah, you just got a whole bunch of fish. And yeah, I'm the master. But you got to understand, it's a different type of love that you have to get to. And Peter got it. And here in, in Peter, his, I love Peter's writings. He says, agape covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. Identifying the giant. The journey to the promised land. You see, Jesus was, uh, God told Moses to deliver the children of Israel, and he was taking them out of bondage to the promised land. And this was, so this was a journey. 
And he was taking him to the land of Canaan. And I see Canaan as a type of the abundant life. And we sing songs about Canaan, the Canaan land, and we sort of typify it as heaven. But I don't see it that way. I believe that Canaan is a type of the abundant life that Jesus came to give. It says, I came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. He wants us to live the abundant life. But the reason why I believe it's not a type of heaven, and maybe you can typify that. I'm not trying to tell, say that that's totally wrong. But there's a reason why. In heaven, I don't expect to find giants there that need to be killed. You see, for them to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, they had to kill the giants. They had to drive out the inhabitants. They were actually supposed to kill them and not drive them out. And also, if you want to eat, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But for you to enjoy the milk and honey, you've got to drive out the giants. You've got to kill the giants, and you've got to milk the cows, and you've got to fight the bees. Then you can enjoy the land, the milk of, the, the land of milk and honey. And I believe that, 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 the, that Canaan land here represents the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And I don't believe that we can enjoy this life until we kill the giant. Giants, but the giant. And until we milk the cows and fight the bees, spiritually. So we want to identify the giant. There were giants there. It, it says the children of Anak were there. They came to Hebron and, Hy and Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. Those were the children. There were three giants there, the children of Anak. They were big guys, right? Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. So here's Caleb driving them out. Now in Joshua, it talks about another giant, and this was Arba. He was the greatest man among the Anakites. You see, he was, he was Papa Giant. He was the daddy of Anak. So what we end up, we seeing, we seeing Papa Giant, we see Daddy Giant, and we see the grandchildren. So we see three generations of giants here. When we think of the Canaan land as being the inheritance, the, the prodigal son had to go on this journey of brokenness as well. And he went on that journey from give me my inheritance, to wasting it and totally blowing it, to make me come, coming back home broken and saying, make me yours. You see, he, he wasted his inheritance because he didn't kill the giant. Can you hear that? He wasted his inheritance because he didn't kill the giant. So when we, look at, when we look at identifying the giant, here's a tree with fruit on it. So the grandchildren, I, I look at the fruit it's the fruit of self-centeredness, anger, anxiety, bitterness, and unforgiveness and depression. And oftentimes when somebody goes for counseling, or they come to somebody, even a, a minister, we start looking at the fruit and we, we try and get rid of the fruit. We focus on getting rid of the fruit. Well, you, sh you know, we need to get rid of your self-centeredness. Uh, the fruit of, actually, the fruit of self-centeredness, you need to get rid of anger, anxiety. Let's see if we can work through those things. And you see, then there's the sun. That's the, that's the trunk of the tree. That's Anak. And the focus there is the focus of self-centeredness, which is pride and greed and lust. And then there's Papa. There's Arba. That's the source. That's the source of self-centeredness. It's, it's my fallen nature. It's being my own God, going my own way and wanting it. And you see, we have a tendency to deal with the fruit and try and get rid of the fruit. And oh, it's great. It's great when you get rid of the fruit, right? really is. But what happens is, you all know, if you get rid of the fruit, it's going to come back. It's going to bear fruit the next year. It's going to come back again, right? 
And so we get rid of the fruit, but then we decide, oh, we're going to get, we're going to chop the tree down. We're just going to cut that tree off. Anybody farming and you cut trees down, what happens? Well, guess what? The, the tree grows back up again. And not every time, but oftentimes shoots will start branching out. And after a while, you have another tree just coming out because of the, because of the roots. And what's interesting is, is, is there's the roots underneath which are providing the nourishment and the strength to rebuild and, and bear more fruit. Sociologist Philip Reif, Philip Reif, he was the great interpreter of Sigmund Freud, writes, religious man was born to be saved, psychological man was born to be pleased. Now, just, there's some challenging thinking here, okay? Uh, Rod Dreher in the Benedict Option writes, the 1960s was the decade psychological man came decisively into his own and the, he now owns the culture. Now these are guys that are doing some heavy thinking. Look what he has to say. Stephen Gardner writes, Eros must be raised to the level of a religious cult in modern society. Not because we really are that obsessed with it, but because the myth of freedom demands it. It is in carnal desire that the modern individual believes he affirms his individuality. It's in carnal desire that he can get what he wants. He pursues his desires. The body must be the true subject of desire because the individual must be the author of his own desire. And I'm just telling you, that's why we see our world pursuing, pursuing uh, fleshly lusts everywhere we turn. I don't, care. I don't care if it's money or if it's material possessions or if it's sports or whatever. It is where we're going. It's because we're, we have to raise this to a cult level, and it's being raised to that level. I have some other quotes, and we'll probably look at them tomorrow morning when we look at why God created us as sexual beings. There's always, there is always a throne, and there's always a cross. And this comes, this comes from C.S. Lewis. He says, when, when I am on the throne, Jesus is on the cross. That's eros. That's the default. You see, if you, don't, if, it, if you don't choose agape, if you don't choose God's love, the default is eros. We have a fallen nature, and that fallen nature wants our way. I want my way. I am selfish by nature. I'm proud by nature. I want my way. And if I don't choose, if I don't crucify the old man, if I don't choose agape, then then I'm going, to be on the I'm going to be on the throne. And we all want to be on the throne. Every single one of you has a throne inside of you. And we must choose who sits on the throne. You see, I must choose because when Jesus is on the throne, I am on the cross. That's agape. And I can promise you, I keep pushing Jesus off the throne and crawling back on. I do. Why? Because I still want my own way. And then I got to realize what I'm doing. And I need to get back on the cross. And, and yeah. What does Jesus say? If any man comes after me, he's going to do three things, right? What's the first one? If anybody comes after me, he's going to deny himself, pick up his cross daily. He has the, he has the audacity to say daily. And then Follow me. 
There's three things. It's, it's dying to self. You see, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and a cross is not to hang around your neck. A cross is to die on. Okay. There's always a throne. There's always a cross. And the cross is supreme agape. There was never, never, ever a love of agape shown like this before than Jesus hanging on that cross and giving his life for you and me. There is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his brothers, and that's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for us. That is supreme agape. I'll be controlled by the love that I choose, and I have those choices. I either will choose agape or by default, I will be choosing eros. Even, see, if you don't choose, you are choosing, even when you don't choose. Killing the giant. What does it mean to kill a giant? In, in Mark, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Isn't that totally awesome? Can you imagine your children come up to you? Dad, hey, Dad, I want you to do for me whatever you ask. Well, you better tell me what you want first. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, on your glory. And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. And, and then when the, the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with, with James and John because they saw their arrogance and their self-centeredness and their self-motives. And Jesus called them to himself and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Listen, we're here because we're here, we're here because we're God's people. And he says, it shouldn't be such among you. Whoever desires to become great of you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. Yeah. And Paul starts out his letters. Paul, a servant. Paul, a bondservant. You see, he understood that he needed to be a slave of all, a servant of all. For even Jesus, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom from, for many. And then once again, here's that verse we were talking about. Deny, take up our cross, follow me. So there's two options when you look at eros and agape. We either conform desire to truth, and that is personal desire is subjected to truth as found in God's word, that's agape. Because you see, every single one of us has desires. But the other option is, is we conform truth to desire. What is known as truth is subjected to personal desire. And that's how we tend to warp and justify what we do in life. We, we, conform, our, we conform truth to our desires rather than conforming desire to truth. Here's some God-given desires, and all of these are God-given desires. God wants us to have purpose in life. He even gave Adam and Eve, he says, he says be fruitful, multiply. He says, uh, take care of the garden, conquer your world. He wanted them to have purpose. Companionship, relationship, that's a desire. Physical drives, hunger, sleep, sex. All those things are, are, are God-given. They're God-given desires. Our senses, our taste, our smell, uh, our feeling. It's all there. Our spirit, the, the desire to belong and to be cared for and love, be loved and to have value or significance in life. Those are all things that God, God gave us and they're healthy God-given desires. But when we subject those to agape, now they, be, they become a blessing to us and a blessing to other people. But when we subject them 
and we conform them to eros, now they become destructive and damaging. So what is iniquity? In the Old Testament, you find iniquity. In the New Testament, you find iniquity. And some of you like to do word studies. And this one's a sort of a challenge and a little bit difficult because when you look up iniquity, you're going to find different Hebrew words, different Greek words. Uh, Greek is a little bit easier. Hebrew is a little bit more difficult. But in the Old Testament, the concept of iniquity means a perversity, something that goes against what's right and healthy. And that's what you see when it says that I'm a jealous God, I will visit the iniquities. It's that perversity upon the children of the third and fourth generation. But the meaning is consistent in the New, in the new and the Old Testament. And, and in the New Testament, it, it means a lawlessness. It's a, a use, uh, anomia. Nomia is law. In the Greek, it's anomia. It's where, it's where we don't want to come under the governing power of anybody but ourselves. And so when we look at this in the scriptures, let's, let's take a look at it. In Ezekiel 28, it's talking about Satan here. He says, you were the anointed cherub. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. God created Satan. He gave him freedom. God is a God of freedom. He gives his creation freedom. But he says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you oh and then we go over to isaiah and it says how art thou fallen from heaven O lucifer son of the morning i will be like the most high yet you shall be brought down to hell do you know what he was doing there's lucifer he got jealous of god's power and because he was given freedom and he had made him the anointed cherub he had put him in response over the, the other angelic beings and he, it went to his head and he says, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be like the Most High. And God says, you know what? There's no other room for somebody to have my glory. Do you remember the, you remember the passage in the New Testament where, where Jesus sent out 70 disciples? Remember that? He sent out 70. And when they came back, they said to him, Lord, Lord, even, even the devils obeyed me when we cast them out in your name. Do you, anybody know what Jesus said after that? He did say that, but he said something before that. Well, he said, hmm? Well, he did say that, but he said something before that. Tell us. <laughs> He's, the first thing he said when they told him that, he said, I saw, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Don't rejoice because the demon, the devils obey you, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Do you know what he was saying? Do you know what they said? They said, Lord, Lord, even the, even the demons obey us when we cast them out in your name. And he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven because of that kind of talk. You see, they were all excited because the demons were obeying them, even using Jesus' name. We gotta be careful. Because think about this, and maybe I have it in my notes yet, it might come up, but I'm just gonna go ahead and you know, here's, listen to what Jesus said. He says, many will come to me in that day, and they're gonna say, Lord, Lord. Now, if they're calling him Lord, that means they're believers, right? They're calling him Lord, Lord. Haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? 
Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we preached in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Since when is doing good works iniquity? When is preaching iniquity? When are we casting out demons? Be iniquity. It's because, Lord, Lord, haven't we? When we take credit for something that goes only to him, you see, that's what, that's what Satan got cast out of heaven because he said, I will be like the Most High. And he was telling the disciples, listen, it's great that the, the enemy listened to you, but it was because of me. All power is given to Jesus. And because Jesus is in us, we have all power too, but we better never take the credit for it. When we take the credit for it, now he says, you workers of lawlessness, you aren't willing to come under the governing power of anybody, but you want, you want that power. That's scary. This whole teaching on Eros and Agape, I sat through a whole weekend of this teaching many, many years ago, and I put it into my own. And I had the audacity to preach out in Modesto. And I did a whole week of revival meetings just on Eros and Agape. How would you like to sit through that boring stuff? I didn't think it was boring, though, because you see, it, 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 you're, just getting, you're just getting 45 minutes to an hour of it. I'm just telling you, it's, it's huge. It is big. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It, it, is, it is our fallen nature. And if we don't understand this, Eros will get us. It'll eat our lunch. It's so important for us to understand what Eros is like. Here, you see, after Satan was cast out of heaven, guess where he shows up? He shows up next in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and he says, you won't surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and guess what? You will be like God. Ah! Guess what he did? He contaminated mankind with the concept that they could be their own God, and they took and they ate, and their eyes were opened. Yeah, and they heard the voice of the Lord God, and they were afraid. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And he says, yeah, well, anyway, isn't it interesting? God says, why'd you hide yourself? And Adam goes, we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Do you know what's, do you know what's crazy? They were always naked. It's only when we become our own God do we start having that deep personhood wound that we become very, very self-conscious of our shame. Because before, there was no shame in nakedness. Okay, It was after they ate and, and they became infected with iniquity. They hid themselves. And you see, we hide ourselves from the Lord God who wants to be close to us when we go our own way. Many, we, we already went over this, so we're not going to keep going over it. So we, we already covered that one. And here's the best definition that I can think of, and it's in the Old Testament. We look there in the New Testament, but look what Isaiah 53, verse 6 says. We all know this scripture very well. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us, every one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord God laid upon the Son the iniquity of us all. Did you know that Jesus came to save us from ourselves? Until we, get, until we understand that, we are not going to walk victoriously. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. He came to, well, let's see, I think we have it here. But you see, it's going our own way. Going our own way is iniquity. Ah, here it is. 
looking for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from what? All iniquity. He came to redeem us from our selfishness, our self-focus. He came to save us from ourselves. And until we realize that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, we're going to keep on allowing iniquity to control us. We have to be saved from our fallen, self-centered, wanting to be my own God. Do you know what? What did Paul say? Paul says, when I was born again, I died once, and that was it, right? No, he says, I die daily. Jesus says, you'll pick up your cross daily and follow me. You see, every day, and sometimes multiple times a day, I got to die. I wish it could just do it once and be done with. Kill that old, kill Arba. You see, here's the whole thing, is I don't, I don't do iniquity, I am iniquity. I don't do eros, I am eros. I need to repent, not for what I do, but for who I am. I need to have that blood cleanse me, not from every, all the sin that I do, but the very motive and the reason Iniquity is the motive and reason why I do the, the naughty stuff that I do. I, and Jesus came to save me from my motive of doing that stuff. He wants to redeem me from that. He wants that gone. That's why we put off the old man, and that's why we put on the new. And that, that old man has to be put off on a regular. He has to be killed daily. Daily. I acknowledge my sin unto you and my iniquity I have not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, we already covered this. We covered it last night. We covered it before lunch, and here it is again. You forgave the motive of why I do what I do. Iniquity is the motive. Sin is the offense. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't it come from your desires that, you, that battle within you? When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You see, God has given us desires, and those desires can be healthy and right when they're under, control, under the control of agape. But when we allow our self-centered nature to run with our desires, we will create havoc. All you got to do is look around and watch it happen. All you have to do is examine your own life and see it happen. Giants need to be killed. Papa giant is me. I die every day. There's only one force that's strong enough to conquer desires. Anybody know what it is? You want to guess? There's only one force that's strong enough to conquer desire. It's the only force that's strong enough to conquer desire. You have to desire the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's when iniquity dies. You see, if I love you, if I love you as I love myself, then I'm going to treat you like if we would swap places, I'm going to treat you like I would want to be treated if I were in your shoes and you're in my shoes. That's agape love. If I'm really angry at you and ticked at you, and that's, that's, you know, I'm really angry at Phil, and I just really want to take him out. But if I agape love him, I'm going to put myself in his shoes and say, man, if he was me and I'm him, 
how would I want him to treat me and talk to me? And that's how I need to treat him and talk to him. That's, that's agape. There's only one thing that's strong enough to conquer the, the eros-driven desires that are within us, whether it, regardless what desire it is, and that is the desire for God, the desire to love him. God, Dallas Willard says, God has set up prayer in such a way that if you want to explain it away, you can. That's the human mind. God set it up like that for a reason, which is this. God ordained that people should be governed in the end by what they want. What do you think of that? So you realize our responsibility to govern what we want? And if I want what I want because of my selfish motives, I'm going to be governed by that. It's going to govern my praying. It's going to govern the way I treat you and treat my wife. Because he has set his love on me, Psalm 91 says, he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He's talking about Jesus here, but it can apply to us. When we set our love on him, set our love on him, set our love on him. What does it mean to set your love on somebody? You choose. Love is not a feeling. Love has feelings. Someone once said that love is when I feel like I'm going to get the feeling that I'm going to feel like I never ever felt before. You see, so many times we reduce love to emotion. And I had a man sitting across the lunch, breakfast uh, table the other day, and, and really good man, good family man. I mean, I just love that brother, and he loves his family, and he's just, he's just a dear friend. But you see, he was raised totally in performance, and he says, he says, Jason, I really struggle because I don't, he says, I don't even know what love, I don't even know what love is. He said, I don't know what love is. He said, I don't really have those kind of feelings toward people. And I looked at him and said, you know something? When I look at you, I see you loving people. And it has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with the way you treat them. I watch how you treat your wife. I watch how you treat your children. I watch how you handle things and you step, step up to the plate and do things. And you are so helpful in church. I said, I watch you love people. Love is, not a, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is a decision. I choose. And when you married somebody, you vow, you, make a, you say, I, until death do us part, I will love you in sickness and health and you know, wealth and poor and whatever else, you're making a covenant not to feel loving, but to be loving. Not to feel faithful, but to be faithful. You see, that kind of love is a choice. And then you can keep on loving people when you don't feel like loving them. Because I can promise you, in every marriage relationship, there's going to be times when you do not feel loving. But that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean you are not loving. It means you keep on doing loving things because you are still choosing to love and you're acting out of that choice, not out of the emotion, not out of the feeling. It's wonderful because I see that love has feelings and I love, agape has feelings. Agape has wonderful feelings of, of love and emotion. But 
Feelings can go away and agape doesn't quit. But if you believe that love is emotions and love is feeling, and all of a sudden you, you don't feel loving towards somebody, it can be very scary because all of a sudden you realize, I don't love that person anymore. No, you have to, that's a choice you make. That's, a ch that's something you choose to do. God didn't say, he de God didn't look down and go, oh man, look at all those cuddly, warm, sweet people down there. I just can't wait to send my son down there to die for him. No, he says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet unlovely, while we were dirty, messed up, filthy, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think the biggest, the, the most important word in, in, in that little passage, it, we, we reduce it to so, for God so loved. No, it's for God so loved that he gave. You see, he so loved that he gave. That was a choice. That was a decision. Yeah, and that's what he wants us to he, We are to be image bearers. We are to be like Jesus. That means we are to choose agape. We are to choose agape. You see, that's a desire. Setting your love on somebody is you, have, you are setting your desire on that person. You're setting your desire on God. You're setting that, that your desire on your spouse or on somebody. How many of you know this song? <clears throat> Do you know this song? Let's sing it. You might not know it, but we'll sing it twice, and by the end, you'll, you'll sort of get to know it, okay? Uh, it's a song I love. I love the words to it. Look at the words. Look at the words. And it goes a little bit like this, okay? It goes, Living God, consuming fire, burn the sin, from my life, make your will my desire. Take my life in your hands. Purify me with your love. Till I shine far brighter than purest gold in your eyes. Once more. Living God, consuming fire, burn the sin from my life. Make your will my desire. Take my life in your hands. Purify me shine far brighter than purest gold in your eyes. Living God. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much 
with an agape love that never quits. It's an unconditional love that even in your anger, you keep on loving us. Even in your grief, you keep on loving us, grieving because we can't really see who you are truly. But Father, would you make your will our desire? And would you take our lives into your hands? Would you mold us into agape-loving people? Thank you, Father. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Your thoughts, your comments on what is love.